Um, this is for Kali. When I was a child, I was I had was feeling I had to be that I was the best among my classmates and friends in neighborhood and school and sports and games. When teenage years began, gradually I stopped being the best in everything. I didn't like that, and I started thinking intensively that if an accident would happen, a miracle would change my brain and make me become the best again quite easily. When I was 15, a car hit me when I was standing at the bus stop. A hematoma removal operation on the left part of my brain took place. I was in a coma for one and a half months. When I was waking up from the coma for some minutes, I was speaking English, not Greek. The outcome of the accident had nothing to do with the miracle I expected. When I gradually and painfully managed to overcome the results of that accident, I realized I had a good excuse for not being perfect anymore. Since then, I have a constant headache, neck pain, shoulders. The pain's intensity goes up and down, but it's always there. Since then, I also feel constant pain under my tooth located at the back of my lower jaw. The pain was the same when my tooth was there. When my tooth was removed and when an implant was placed last year, no doctor has ever found the reason and therapy for the pains mentioned above. So she has sought the help of doctors. She's asking, can you please help me get rid of these pains? The outpouring group tried to heal me, but no results. I heard a video of yours that some people not might not be able to be healed. Can you see if I'm one of these cases? And could you explain why I was speaking in English when I was in a coma? In a dream, I've heard a voice calling me that the constant pain under my tooth is a friend that will help my grounding whenever I learn how to get out of body. I am trying to get out of body recently with no results. I feel fear because of the pulsation state. Can you comment on that too? There's a little more, but um, I'll read those later since I've given you a lot already to comment on, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've said uh, before, uh, you have to be very careful what you what you uh, wish for, or very careful what you program for. Um, often you will get it and then won't really like the result. Well, there's a lesson in there. And I suspect that that lesson roots in the, the ego and the fear that was having a problem not being the best. And the idea that, you know, an accident might fix that, well, um, it obviously didn't fix that. It made everything worse. And that's often the way it is when we try to make solutions from an ego, from an ego, from an egoic point of view. That is not that unusual that you get that kind of, of, uh, result from it. Now, as far as going forward, I would say your your pain 
probably is connected to the lessons that you need to learn. And that voice that you got that said, yeah, you have this pain because, you know, you need to, uh, you need to outgrow certain things. You need to grow up. You need to do this. Well, it's that out of body, but going out of body isn't a fix for anything. You know, going out of body is, is just a, basically a way of letting go of the physical reality and then you're not in it anymore. So then you're not in your body anymore. It's not going to fix a pain, but growing up probably will getting rid of the fear probably will the pain and the difficulties you're having are um artifacts of the fear that you have if you get rid of that fear then the pains will go away by themselves your life will straighten out as you evolve the quality of your consciousness the problems that you're having will just disappear with with time as you do that so i would say focus on getting rid of the fear Okay, you start to get in a pulsation state and that causes fear. Well, again, the antidote for fear is courage. You just have to accept, um, you know, what, what is the fear? Say, all right, I'm having a pulsation state. What's the fear? For most people at that stage in a pulsation state, the fear is being out of control. They're no longer in control. And that's scary because this thing is happening to them. And when things happen to them and they're not controlling it, that's frightening. They want to be in control of anything that happens to them, the things that they feel. And that uh, fear of not being in control is the thing that uh, probably gets you when it's a, when it's a pulsation state. The, uh, what you could do to oppose that is just let the pulsations go. Don't focus on them. The more you focus on them, the worse they'll get. The bigger they'll get. Um, sometimes they'll get almost violent. If you just say, okay, pulsations, do your thing. I'll ride you like a bucking bronco. I'm just going to hang in here, and you go ahead and do what you're going to do, and I'll be with you. I'm just going to hang in here with you, and I won't you know, get any kind of emotional reaction to them. I'm just going to experience them then you will see they will very quickly quiet down and won't have to uh, uh, get your attention by being uh, uh, what so uh, so violent or so demanding. So you just have to let the fear go, accept them. Sometimes people fear, oh, what is that vibration? It's going to throw me out into some other world and I have nothing. I don't know anything about this world. What if it's scary? What if there's a big monster over there with big teeth and it's hungry and it throws me out into this world right in front of that monster and it eats me? You know, what then? I don't know about this, this other reality and its dangers and what kind of evil things might lurk there. And then you're afraid of the out of body. Well, those kinds of fears will keep you from getting there because you're not ready yet. If you have that much fear, you're not really ready to experience the outer body, but you are ready to grow up, it seems, because you're here, you're asking questions, you're asking for help to to uh, get out of this, it means you're you're ready to grow up. Well, now what you need is courage to let the fear go. Just experience it. Say, well, wherever this, this, this vibration state takes me, I'll go there. And if I get into this other, I get into some other reality frame, I'll just go there. 
I'll deal with it. If there's a big monster there that eats me, well, so be it. But I'm going anyway. So if you have that sort of idea, then you'll find out there are no monsters there. <laughs> there's nothing that's going to eat you. The only thing you'll find there is your own fear. If you're afraid of a monster, you'll find a monster. That's why I say you're not ready yet to go out of body because you're going to find monsters. You're going to find evil things. You're going to find black entities with growing, glowing red eyes. You're going to find all kinds of scary things there because you have that fear inside of you and you will manifest it into metaphors that are frightening to you. So you have to get rid of the fear first. And the way you get rid of fears is just one small step at a time. If you go uh, uh, Google phobias, any kind of phobia is a fear. It's a fear generally of a very specific thing. You have a phobia of heights or snakes or spiders or um, getting out and meeting people. Whatever that is, you'll see that the process that is prescribed for that is to just go slowly. Take one little step into that fear and accept it. And then you can step back. Then take another step into it. And then come back. And then take two steps into it. And you just slowly work your way through it. But because it's slow, you have to have stick You have to have gumption that lasts. If it's something you work at for two weeks and you're not successful, so you give it up, then that will probably not work for you. It's not going to take two weeks. It's probably going to take two years or maybe two decades. I don't know. But you need to be determined that you will get rid of the fear and keep working at it. Also, if you read about phobias, you'll see that they generally don't go away in a week or two. They're often months, sometimes many months, sometimes years before people can deal with them. And that's a very specific fear that makes it easier to deal with. Your fear is more general, which makes it harder to deal with. So you're going to need to have uh, stick to gumption, courage, just to keep working, pushing that fear out of your way a little more and a little more. Go further with that, with that uh, uh, pulsation state. Um, decide that you're just going to let it happen and not worry about it, not give it energy. See, as soon as you get fearful of it, it gets bigger. It kind of grows on your fear energy. So by getting rid of the fear, that stuff will go away. And then what you'll find out is once you get rid of the fear, you're a, you're so much happier person. You're so much lighter. Life is so much easier. Relationships get better. Everything in your life will start to get better. So that's the, that's the way to deal with fear. It just takes courage. There's no other way. There's no pill you can take that'll help you get rid of fear. It just takes courage and you have to go beyond it. And it is not easy to do. It will take constant effort on your part, a sincere desire over a long period of time to do it. But if you have that desire over a long period of time, you will do it. It is a thing that I can guarantee that you will succeed if you have that in strong intent and you keep after it. You will succeed. You will win. You will get rid of the fear. Just that focused intent will raise the probability that that fear will go away. And it will go away in bits and pieces until eventually it's gone altogether. 
The biggest mistake is for people to say, I can't, or I tried for a week and it didn't work. Those things, it's not going to, you know, if you, if you think in your mind, I can't, well, then you won't be able to, because that's a fear, a fear that you can't. So, you know, that's, a, that's just another fear. The fact that it's going to take a long time, well, you just have to want it bad enough to put in that amount of time to do it. But it will make the rest of your life so much better. So I, I encourage you to go do that. I encourage you that you can get rid of it. You can get rid of that pain. All of that will go away. All of those discomforts you have will disappear once you grow up. Once you get rid of that ego, get rid of that fear, get rid of your beliefs, and just be, those things will start to go away. They're there because of the fear that you have, mostly. They're not there because of some objective reason. They're there mostly for a subjective reason, which is the fear. Thank you, Tom. I don't want to leave any part of her question out, so I'm going to read to you the the last two bits. But if you could also address and explain why she was speaking English when she was in a coma. The second part of the question is, while my English is not good, when I read My Big Toe and other English books, I spend many hours looking at unknown words in the dictionary. Is there a way to make my English as good as my Greek? Um, even if I have a good job, I struggle financially. I'm a single mother and I work around 10 to 12 hours a day. I do loads of manifestation techniques on alpha and theta brainwaves, similar to the Silva method, and by myself and with the help of teachers, but nothing seems to work. And I think you've addressed this. Can you see if there's a specific reason or lesson I have to overcome in order for the LCS to open this abundance and easier life for me? Yeah, I would say that you spoke English while you were out just because that is a very odd thing to do. And the system had you do that. I mean, after all, you were in a coma. So it wasn't that you were really speaking English. Your body spoke the English. I suspect you can look at that as a sign that what was happening to you was part of your own creation between you and the larger consciousness system. So that the system spoke some English, which was unexpected since you didn't know English, that's a good sign that there's a connection there. This is not just a random event, something that just happened to happen to you, but something the system is working with you. The system is involved with you. That's good. That's good news. It's aware of you, and you have to get rid of the fear. There is nothing that's going to take it away from you. You have to get rid of it. It's not like somebody will... You know, the system will come down and make all your fears go away. That doesn't happen. You have to do that on your own. It's That's the nature of this place. It's the nature of consciousness. You have to change who you are with your own free will choices. Nobody can do it for you. So that is a key idea. You're going to have to work on it. You're going to have to find that courage. You're going to have to take the time. And the reason that you're manifestations are not working very well for you is because you're doing them probably more from the intellectual level and not as much from the being level and because they are probably more about you and what you want than they are about growing up 
and becoming love. The system doesn't support a lot of stuff that is going to make you feel better, you know, because it makes your ego feel better. It doesn't support that sort of thing. It won't stop it. It just doesn't support it. What it will support is you using your intent to develop your courage, to develop your stamina, to develop your desire to to get rid of the fear. Then the system will work with manifesting that. But if you want to manifest a nice house in the suburbs with two cars and a garage, then the system's not going to work for that. It's not going to work that much to give you a better job or a, you know, that sort of thing. It's, that's your, yours to create from your own choices. Now you can, you can still program some of that and the system will not, not make it happen. It just won't go to the extra energy to make it happen. But you'll have to learn how to get down into the, to the being level as you use your intent and not make it from the intellectual level, which makes it more of a wish, which is just not very effective. Wishing for it. Get into that state where you are in that alpha or theta state. Let go of your thoughts. Uh, exist just at the feeling level and then put energy into what you're trying to manifest. And again, if it's manifesting things that are on your way to growing up, that'll be good. If it's just stuff to make your life easy, that probably isn't going to happen. Thank you, Tom. I hope that helps. Callie, we wish you all the best. Um, Mal, please go ahead with your question. Uh, thank you, Donna. Yes, uh, Tom, well, uh, the question I wrote is, has already been answered in other videos, but uh, I have a new one. It's, uh, it's this one. Tom, how, how can we know the difference between a deep belief uh, and, a, and, and a characteristic of our being level? Okay. So how do you know when you're at the being level that it's your being level and not just some belief or some part of your ego or something else? Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I get – Yeah, a lot of people have that question. How do I know – when I'm coming from a being level and not coming from the intellect, how do I know when I'm really being kind and not just acting kind? You know, how do I know uh, um, these things? And you don't know them um, in a at a moment to moment when you're doing them. There's no way to tell exactly what your motivation is or where it's coming from um, until. You succeed. You know, it's one of these things about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not there until you get there. Like you're not going to be aware of those things until after you've already grown enough to be aware of those things. So in the process of growing up, it's difficult because you're not aware enough to be aware of those things. The more you grow up, the more that awareness develops, which means you just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps just one little increment at a time. And the way you can tell what you're doing or not doing is just look at the long-term results. Go back over the past year, a year's probably long enough, and think, how am I different? How have I changed? What's, am I a different me now than I was a year ago or five years ago? Do I see, is my reality different? Do I see things differently? Do I relate to people differently? How, you know, how much have I grown up? And if you can look back over a year or five years 
and see, yeah, that's good. I've changed a lot. I never used to, you know, connect with this or that or get this information or care about these things. And now I do. Well, that's, that's then some evidence that you are in the process of changing yourself. And if those changes are too low entropy, you know, they're low entropy changes. These are good, good changes. Then that's very good. But even a better way is to ask other people, ask other people if they've noticed any change in you over the last year or the last five years. Do you seem any different? Other people are usually better judges of, you know, who and what you are than you are. And you're better judging who and what they are than they are because our ego tells us all kinds of things about ourselves to make us feel good. And that will get in the way. But other people's ego will only tell them about them, not about you. So they can look at you and the ego's not telling them about you. Unless they happen to be your mother, maybe, or, or somebody that's close to you, you know. But if you ask just a friend or uh, uh, somebody who's known you over that time and see what they say. But they have to have been around you enough that they really know who you are, you know, not just somebody you meet casually. Then those kinds of people can tell you whether or not you seem to have changed much. And if the answer is, no, I don't really see much change, you seem like the same person you were, and you can maybe ask them a few questions. Well, what about in this area or what about in that area? And if they just don't see any change, then you're probably not changing very much. So that would tell you whether or not you are acting kind or being kind. Okay, If you're being, then you're going to change yourself. And that kindness will come out in all sorts of ways other than just helping little old ladies across the street. It's going to come out in lots of different ways, just in interactions, just in tiny little things. It's going to come out because that's you at the being level. If you're acting kind, then it only is going to happen specific situations where you see somebody in need and you help them because you think you should. You see, it's not really a part of your life. It doesn't come out into all your interactions and everything that you do. It just comes out when you notice it. So people pick up on that. You might not pick up on that, but other people will pick up on that. So that's how you tell whether or not you're really doing it or whether you're just kidding yourself that you're doing it and you're acting it. So it's that same kind of thing. But basically, you don't know. So you just keep working at it. And you just keep working at it. And years later, maybe five years later, you look back and see how far you've come. Or maybe it doesn't take that long. You may look back just six months and see that you've made progress. Or little. So that's the thing. You have to, you know, my book, I say you have to taste the pudding, you know, to see how good it is. You can't just, you know, think about it and decide, well, the ingredients were good, so it must be delicious. You know, you have to, you have to taste it. You have to, you have to notice the change. And other people should be able to notice them even easier than you do. But that's the thing, you know, how do you feel about people? How do you feel about relationships? How much of it has to be your way? How much of it uh, do you know what's right for you and everybody else? And if they just if they just do whatever you say, it would be a really great world. You know, how much do you think that way? And how much do you think in the way of well, everybody just is who they is, who they are, and I'll care for them and support them best I can, and uh, help them maybe uh, learn something as I help myself learn something as I as I try to be you know uh, loving to them. So it depends on how, you know, how do you approach things and people? Is it mostly from ego or is it mostly uh, not? It's mostly from love. So those are the kind of hard questions you ask and see if there's any sort of change.
but you won't know. There isn't any test. You know, I, I tell people that if you want to see how how you're doing, look at your look at your emotions. How do you feel? If your emotions are always positive and upbeat and happy and and great and you know joy and love and peace and you know you feel secure, you feel um, you know rewarded. Your, your life is a good life. You feel that very positive. Then you're probably doing things very well. If you are a person who gets angry, gets upset, gets annoyed, gets frustrated, then you're probably not doing so well. So your emotions will tell you how negative are your emotions and how positive are your emotions. If they're 90% positive and 10% negative, you're doing really well. If it's the other way around, they're 90% negative and 10% positive, you still have a lot of work yet to do. You know, how much do you complain? How much do you, uh, put other people down. Oh, look at that idiot in that car. They don't know what they're doing. You know, they, <laughs> come on, guy, go step on the gas. What's the matter with you? You know, and you, you get angry and upset with people who are not doing it the way you want them to do it. You see, that's not a good sign. So it's just those little things in life that uh, will tell you, are all your emotions tend to be positive or are they not positive, like being aggravated with people who aren't doing it right because they're not doing it the way you want them to do it. Okay. So, uh, would it be useful useful to um, try to to see uh, how what was your first reaction uh, before thinking in a, yeah, in a helps. situation? Yes, that helps too. Because yeah. if you're if you're acting, then you'll get that first reaction, and then you'll cover it up. Like let's uh -huh. say you're trying to be nice. So you feel the anger coming on, but then you stuff that down and smile instead. Yes, that, that first reaction is you, and that second reaction is you acting. So if your actions are different than the first reaction, the first reaction and the last reaction are different, then you're acting. You're not really being real. So, yeah, that would be one way of looking at it. What's that very first thing that comes? And don't feel bad if that first thing that comes is anger or something negative. That's just the way we are. You know, we're not a really grown-up bunch of people. But just take the idea, yeah, that's the way it is. Accept it. Don't try to justify it. Just own it and say, that's the way it is. I'll, I'll try to be better. Not try to do better, but I'll try to be better. And, it, again, you'll get the next time something, the same thing comes up, you'll get angry again. And you go, ah, there it is again. Well, I'm going to try to be better. And, It may take you a hundred times getting it wrong before you get it right. But then you'll see that that getting it right gets more and more often. And pretty soon that fear is gone and that button doesn't exist on you anymore. And you don't get angry over those things anymore. So that's the, that's the process. You know, don't feel disappointed if you're not perfect, you know, accept yourself as having ego and beliefs and fears because that is just normal that's the way we are and accept that but work on it and you don't have to get them all gone on on a week just pick an easy one pick a little one and get rid of it and then get the next one and this is a lifetime's work if in the next five years or ten years you've made terrific progress well then you will be of the top two or three percent of the population so just keep chugging away on it okay Thank you, Tom. And we'll go to Ingo, please. Yeah, thank you, Donna. Hello, Tom. Um, I would like to ask you um, 
if you know how much time passes on average, on average, um, when an avatar dies until he uh, reincarnates? Um, no, I don't really know that. Uh, it isn't a long time. There's not a lot of time that passes, but time is a funny thing. You know, once you die and you're not in the system anymore, then you're not, you know, you're not working our clock anymore. You're off, you're off the, the, the PMR clock, the physical matter reality clock. You are now on, uh, um, transition reality clock, which doesn't necessarily tick in the same way. It's probably a lot uh, slower clock because it doesn't need the detail in time it can it can compute in much bigger delta t's so what would be the time if we if we have so we have to keep the same the same uh, viewpoint from the same time frame in order to answer the question so say from the physical reality frame from the pmr physical reality frame how much time appears to go by before the dead person would have another body again I would say it could be anywhere from, oh, in the fastest cases, probably, um, well, the very fastest cases, probably hours, but that's probably not real typical. Um, you know, some, some days to, you know, some months, I'd say a year would be a really long time. Probably a couple of months would be more typical. A couple of hours is somebody really knows what they want to do and they have a plan already and they're ready to go. Well, it won't take long. You know, they, it may not be long at all before they uh, come back. If they have a very specific thing they want to do, then they may have to wait for that specific situation to come about. Or if it's a very specific family that they want to be born into, they may have to wait for that to come about. Or if they want to incarnate with a specific set of other entities that whom they will interact with while they're here, then they're going to have to wait until all that can get planned out. But if they're just going to jump out and jump back in, and if they don't need a lot of counseling in between, and they decompress and let go pretty easily, then it won't be very long. It could be just, you know, some days, few months at most. But not a not a long time. It just depends on the opportunities, you know, that uh, that are there that suit their situation. That's the one thing that that's the variable in the time that that you don't know for sure. If they didn't care, if they take any situation, they could probably turn over in you know, in what hours? Probably less than a day if there were no uh, uh, requirements, particular requirements for that individual, something they wanted to do, then it would be very fast. If there were a lot of requirements, that takes longer. So it depends, but it's not long. It's not a long time. Now, some people don't want to come back very quickly. Some people say, when I get out of here, you know, I'm gone. I don't want to come back to this place. I just want to sit out and do other things. And you can you're never forced. You always get the only, you only come back when you're ready to. So if you said that, then be fine. You could just go do whatever you wanted to do. And, uh, that may take longer. Again, your clock is going to be a real, uh, uh, is going to, is going to go in big chunks of time 
because it doesn't need the time resolution that we need here because of our rule set. So it's going to be a different kind of different kind of clock there. We can't really make comparisons about the time there and the time here. But anyway, uh, it doesn't take very long. It's usually pretty quick. Okay, thank you. That's uh, very interesting. I thought it would be years or so, um, but it's rather quick. Yeah, it's rather quick. It could be years if you have a very special situation you're waiting for or very special individuals that you're waiting to connect with, then it could be years. But um, I think that's the exception rather than the rule. Okay, thank you. Inga, you had another mm -hmm. question if you'd like to mm -hmm. ask that. Yes. Um, when I discovered MBT, I had a period of um, very... Um, a small, unusual uh, things happened to me in a, maybe for a year or two. And in the last time, uh, it doesn't happen so often anymore. And there were times where I was a little bit worried that I lost somehow my connection with the system or something like that. But I think that don't happen. Um, what is your opinion um, to that? Um, to the experience of these unusual things and that it doesn't happen so often anymore. Yeah, that is not unusual. It's a pretty typical uh, process. People often have a lot of unusual experiences, paranormal experiences and experiences of interactions with things other than the objective physical world. As they are reading MBT, or shortly after that they've read it. And that's because the book talks about these things in a way that opens up their possibility. So before there was no possibility of these things. It wasn't something that was in your mind. Just like the scientists back in the 20s couldn't come up with the idea of virtual reality because it just wasn't there in their mindset. It wasn't a concept that that they could have. It didn't mean anything. The whole concept of a virtual reality hadn't been born yet. So they couldn't get there. Um, so there are, that's one reason. You read MBT and it's suddenly you see a lot of possibilities that you didn't see before. And those just being aware of the possibilities makes just a lot of things happen because you're open to the possibilities more than you were before. And then as those things happen, well, they attract your attention and now you're even more open because look what just happened. And that was weird. And, and uh, you know, that was kind of neat. So the more you have them, the more it kind of opens you to them. So it kind of snowballs for a while and gets more and more. But then life gets overcome by events, you know, normal things. You know, you're they're not that exciting anymore because they've happened to you a lot, these unusual things. So they don't have quite the same emotional uh, energy in them because they They're now, no, not necessarily old hat, but they're not as new and exciting as they used to be. So life starts to overcome. Other things get in the way, and you just kind of lose it. That is kind of typical progression. Um, I find in meditation that it comes and goes. It's very common for people to get into a time where they're meditating every day. And they might do that for six months or a year or two years, and then they'll get into a period where they don't meditate at all. 
that that every day will go to every other day to every week to every other week and just kind of falls off and pretty soon they just they don't meditate anymore and then six months or a year goes by and they miss it they feel like yeah i used to meditate now i'm not doing anything you know and and, uh, do they want to get back to it and maybe they do maybe they don't they may let it go for a while and then something will happen and they'll just get interested in it again and then they'll start meditating every other week and then every week and then every day and they get back to where they're immersed in it. And those kinds of, of wax and wanes or ebb and tide or whatever, uh, that the words are for, you know, comes and goes, those are normal. And I think a lot of times what's going on is that you have a lot of experiences and now you need some time just to process that. At first the experiences are kind of exciting and energizing when they happen, but you have to process that in, process that into how is this a part of my life? How is it, instead of it just being an extra thing I do on the side, it has to become a part of who you are, a part of your life. And that takes time. That's the, um, kind of integration phase. And during the integration phase, you don't need a whole lot of new things to integrate. So you get a lot of new experiences, then you take some months or years to integrate them into your life. And then you have an interest of getting a lot more new things. And then you integrate those into your life. And it just goes that way. So it'll, your interest in, in uh, the non-physical, your interest in, in exploring the larger conscious system, your interest in meditating will come and go. And I think that's natural as it needs to, as you have to integrate these experiences and bring them into you at the being level, not just an experience, but part of your life. So each time you go back to it, it's a little different. Yeah, you still have some exciting things, but it's really in a different context now because you're a different person. So you get them and you're, you you grow a little more and a little faster each time you come back to it. So I think that's normal. Don't feel like, oh, I had it. No, I lost it. Oh, no, I'm back to where I started. It's not like that. You started, you've integrated things. It's changed you. You're different now. And when you get back to it, you'll see things will happen a little differently next time. There'll be a little more meaning. It won't be quite so much gee whiz, but there'll be a little more uh, meaning to it, a little more substantial. And then you'll drift out of it again. So I think that's just normal. It comes and it goes, and that's okay. When it goes, let it go. Don't feel bad about it. When it comes back, work on it and realize it's probably going to go again before it comes back again. Okay, thank you, Tom. Yeah. Oh, okay. Please go ahead. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. <laughs> it's okay, Donna. Right. I just want to say thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, Frank, how's your microphone? Not. Okay. I will read your question. Okay. <laughs> um, Frank has a question. You've previously been asked why, when we're born into this PMR, we don't know that it's a virtual reality. You've replied that if we knew it was a virtual reality, we'd likely be trying to game the system. We'd only be acting good instead of being good. This wouldn't make for efficient learning. But now with your quantum experiments, quantum mechanics experiments, you're working towards a goal of a global paradigm shift so that scientists and then everyone else on the planet will understand that this is a, this is a virtual reality. 
How to reconcile these two? Wouldn't the global paradigm shift also mean that most people on the planet would only act good instead of be good? Uh, yes, they probably will in the beginning. That's often the way people approach growing up. They start acting. You know, what is the, the phrase? So fake it till you make it. They start acting. And in the process of being, that acting is, is like the, the, the ramp that helps them go there. So, yes, that's the case. We come here and we don't have any memory of our past experiences. We don't have any memory of our past lifetimes. And the advantage there is that we start off fresh each time. Well, now people will know they're in a virtual reality. They won't know really any of their past experiences anymore. They are still having to start off fresh each time. But they will have an idea, hopefully, that the point of being this, that there is a way to, there is a way to win the game. You know, there is a, there is a way to, to work the game, and that is to become love. You know, that's the winning hand, not to uh, build up an ego and have everything your way. That's not a winning hand, even if it makes you rich. That's a losing hand. So once people have an idea it's a virtual reality, I'm hoping they'll have an idea that love is the answer and they need to grow up and find, uh, you know, a, a more low entropy uh, state, a higher quality, a consciousness state in order to live in. That's the hope. Okay, some of them will when they get when they first get the news that this is a virtual reality. Some of them will say, "Oh well, then nothing's important. It's a virtual reality." So if I go out and kill somebody, I'm not really killing anybody. I'm just getting rid of some avatar, but the consciousness is going to be just fine. So I can do anything anywhere to anyone, and it doesn't matter because it's just a virtual reality. And that is a downside that some people will have that attitude because they've played, uh, um, you know, the the, uh, the virtual reality games that are mostly violent, you know, where you drive around in your car and mug little old ladies in alleys and, you know, murder people and stuff like that. So they'll have this attitude, attitude that that's, way, that's the way virtual realities are. It doesn't matter because they're just avatars. Well, that means that they haven't understood it. That's a very, very shallow idea of virtual reality, at least of this virtual reality. The fact is it does matter. It's the thing that matters most in all of your life and all of your being. The thing that matters most is the choice you're going to make tomorrow, the choices you're making today. That's what's important and that these choices are for low entropy. Yes, you can run roughshod in the virtual reality and uh, that just causes you to de-evolve and makes your next evolution more difficult because now you're not even up to the level that you were before. So it's like if you run rampant in a game and you aren't nice and you do things that are immoral and nasty, you go down a level. This is a game where you decrease your level by bad behavior. So once they understand that's the virtual reality, you increase your level by good behavior, bad behavior, you know, you decrease and pretty soon you get to a zero level and uh, perhaps you're not even allowed to play. Maybe you need to go someplace else. Maybe you need to come back as a golden retriever next time, learn something about, about, uh, you know, giving. So that's the point. Once you really understand better what the reality is like, the only way to level up is to make good, ethical, moral choices. That's how you level up. And if you don't do that, you level down. 
and you get further and further away. The game gets harder and harder. Your life gets more and more miserable. Uh, your relationships all get worse and worse. And it's just uh, taking you in the opposite direction. So though a few people will think that way, hopefully there won't be many. I'm hoping that's a minority. It's, oh, it's just a virtual reality. I can shoot somebody. It's only an avatar. Who cares? Well, they should care. And that person who's working that avatar, you know, has put an investment in that avatar and that uh, through that situation and learning in that situation and to nullify that other person's investment of their time, that is a very, you know, self-centered thing to do. That means that's a bad choice and you de-evolve. So hopefully when they get the idea to VR, they'll also get the idea kind of how the VR works and and how you level up and what leveling down and up means. And there won't be much of that problem because just seeing it's a VR is going to set some people loose. Like it doesn't matter. There's a lot of people now in this reality don't know it's a VR and they feel that way anyway, that it doesn't matter. You know, most of the hoodlums and criminals and people who do awful things are people who just feel like it doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want. If it hurts other people, ah, so what? It's not my problem. You know, that's their attitude. So I don't know that knowing that it's a VR will, will increase that a whole lot, but it will increase it some. I would agree. There are going to be some people who feel that way, but that's because they don't understand. And I'm hoping that this transition period between when everybody first finds out it's a virtual reality to where we also find out what the nature of the game is and how you win, you know, that that won't be a lot of years between those two points. But I no doubt the transition will not be smooth and probably not quick. There will probably be some turmoil and, and uh, some negativity. And backlash and other things that will be spawned during this transition, there always is in transitions. Big transitions are never smooth, laminar flow kinds of things. Usually there's turbulence and, you know, dysfunction sprouts up all over the place before before people kind of get it together and, and uh, you know, the whole thing goes on. I mean, that's like us in the Internet now. The Internet's a new thing, and you have the Internet being put to a lot of wonderful uses. And you have the internet, you know, helping people to con other people and helping people to rip off and to take advantage and manipulate and, you know, spread, spread hate. And you use it for a lot of negative things as well. But I think eventually, you know, that'll go away as we grow up. Any, any big change has its negative side effects as well as its positive ones. If the, if eventually that positive grows and the negative decreases, well, then it's going to be a win sooner or later. And that's the way I see it uh, working out. So you're right. There's a bit of a problem there, but hopefully that transition won't take too long. All right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Frank, uh, you do have another question. I'm going to come back to it after this uh, next question. Sveta, who is listening in, does have a question for you. And she wants to ask you what you think about bipolar and its connection to artistic ability. And in general, if it's a mental illness, or as shamans say, it's a condition for a person to become a healer, would you have an opinion on that? Well, yes. You know, this term mental illness is just a term we make up. And generally what it means is somebody is not like us. 
you know, that's pretty much what the term mental illness means. You know, somebody that's not like us, <laughs> we define ourselves as mentally healthy because we, we're the people that get to write these definitions down. You know, so somebody writes the definition down, you know, who are they? I guess they're the psychologists and the psychiatrists that make up the, the book of prescribed uh, mental illnesses. You know, so they coin the term mental illness and then they decide who's what's mentally ill and what's not. And people who are very different from us in the way they think and the way they uh, look at the world and the way they feel, you know, well, being not like us, we generally call that a mental illness. It doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be an advantage or that there aren't good good sides to it as well. Like autism, you know, you have autism, which can be a very devastating thing, but some autistic people are uh, brilliant in certain aspects of their life. They can do things better than anybody because that, that autism has given them a huge advantage in some very specific, you know, thing that they do. So it can be like that. You know, uh, people who are blind learn to hear things that normal people don't hear. People who are deaf learn to see things that normal people don't see. You know, so there's there's some advantage in not being like everybody else. You get to see the world in a different way than they do, which means you have your own unique set of challenges. If you're bipolar, you've got this, um, you know, the you get the the uh, some days you're you're manic up, and some days you're depressed and down. And you can go from very depressed to very, uh, you know, to very up. So you're, you're, you're in charge of the world and everything is great. And then the world sucks and you're at the bottom of a garbage pit and it's terrible. And you isolate. That's what bipolar means. You got, you swing between opposite poles is the name of that. You know, the, the name is really a description of, of a condition. And it seems to be a condition that may be a, um, a part of the way the brain chemistry works. Uh, the brain chemistry uh, maybe doesn't balance as well as it should, but it's just differences. I mean, whether people are, are very bright or not very bright is probably just a difference in brain chemistry, you know, but it's, it just makes people different or whether they're, you know, this way or that way, they have proclivities for things. So I tend to look at all of these, these different uh, illnesses Mostly it's just differences. And if there is something that you can be good at when you have this illness, then be good at that and realize that, that the, and again, I'm just using the word illness, not because I think it means there's something wrong with you as it is just, that's what our society calls it. But this difference, let's call it that. So if you have these differences, then you should look and see what, what advantages, what do I get from this difference? What can I do with it? Where does it allow me to, to excel for me to, to express myself? And for many, art is a natural answer to that question because art is done at the intuitive level and people who are different usually are different. And I mean, all kinds of differences, not just bipolar. They're different in the ways they process data, in the ways they interact with people in their feelings, and this all takes place in feeling space, being level space, and being level space is where you create art. So that's why being artistic and being different kind of go together. Because when you're normal, 
that means you're probably intellectual, um, probably tend to, uh, you know, left brain dominance, and you're really good at jobs that require you to process stuff. And uh, if you're not good at that, then your society will tell you that there's something wrong with you, but that isn't really the case. You're just different and you need to find ways in which you can fit in. Now you'll have, when you are different, you'll have specific and different challenges that other people don't have. You're going to be challenged in relationship. You're going to be challenged in employment. You're going to be challenged in you know, making a living. You're going to have other challenges because our life, our our social life, our culture, our cities and cultures are set up for the average person. The average person has nice little thoroughfares and byways made just for them, and they slip right down them, and, you know, they go out and they eventually end up with a college degree and two and a half children, you know, living in the suburbs, you know, with two cars and two dogs, and that's just average, and that's where you end up if you just fit all those little pre-made slots and slide right along from one thing to the next to the next and so on, and everything just kind of fits for you. That's where your, that's what your culture is made from, is made for, for those people. That's what all our processes are made for. You know, you go to the, you go to some place, I don't know, you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles to get your vehicle licenses. And if your, if your case is just average, like everybody else's case, well, you go right through that process without any problem. If you happen to walk up to that, that, uh, person behind that desk and you have something that's just unusual, it just doesn't fit their normal thing. You may never get out of that bureaucracy. It may take you months to get what it is you need done because you just don't fit the normal process. Well, that's the way it is in our whole culture. So if you're different, then you are going to have different challenges. But these challenges can help you grow just as much. Just because it's a challenge and just because it's difficult and just because you don't fit in doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to grow up a whole lot in the process. You can still grow up a whole lot in the process. And as you grow up, you will be more and more able to modify those differences if you wish. In other words, you can modify that brain chemistry to some extent the more you grow up. And as you grow up, you also tend to grow out of being um, pushed around by these differences. You'll begin to master them, and they won't become such a big deal anymore. And pretty soon, you won't have trouble acting as if you're normal, even though you know you're not. But you will have had you know, the advantage of growing through experiences that others don't have, challenges that others don't have. People who run right through those those uh, those slots, those highways that are made for the average people, they don't have so many challenges, and therefore many of them don't really grow up very much because life is just kind of easy. They just do the things they do, and everything kind of works because life is made for them to do that. And they get to about 45, 50 years old, and they have a midlife crisis, and they just don't know that they've accomplished anything. They feel empty. And they feel lost and like, you know, what, what has my life been worth? All right, I, I hit all the posts I was supposed to hit. And I did all the right things at the right time. And here I am. And, 
just don't feel satisfied. I don't feel like I'm, I'm accomplished. And then they have to go out and find their challenges in growing. Well, when you have challenges from birth because you only have one leg or something, then you, you have to deal with things that average people don't have to deal with. So there's some advantages and there's some disadvantages to every spot in the culture, whether it's the dead center average spot or whether it's out on the fringe spot, there's advantages and disadvantages to all of it. And maybe if your spot out there on the fringe is, is really difficult to, to grow, let's say maybe you're severely mentally retarded or, or severely uh, autistic. If you're severe, then your growth, you're going to actually help a lot of other people grow who have to deal with you and in your interaction. And you're going to grow as much as you can. And maybe it won't be a whole lot in that lifetime, but you'll be a lot of, you'll be a challenge to a lot of other people who are going to have to grow up to deal with you. And it's only one lifetime and the next one, you know, you won't have to do that again. You'll do something else. So sometimes we have lifetimes where we don't actually make a lot of progress, but that's okay. You know, we're, we're still being useful. We're still uh, learning and still growing. And uh, uh, it's just a lifetime. There's plenty more of those. So I'd say, uh, Sveta, um, bipolar, sure, in art. Yeah, why not? It's probably a good match. And it's also a good match for a lot of, for a lot of uh, other things besides just, you know, art's a good match for other things besides bipolar. Art is often used as therapy for people who are different, you know, whatever their differences are. Why? Because art speaks at the intuitive level, not at the intellectual level. And that intuitive level is pretty much uh, solid for everybody, even the ones that are different. That intuitive level is there. Even the severely retarded have a pretty decent intuitive level that they can work from. So. I hope that helps uh, a little bit, but it's um, okay. You're different if you're bipolar, but that's not a, you know, that's not like a horrible thing. It's like accept it, deal with it, learn from it, do what you do well, and uh, make the best of it. And eventually you can maybe get to the point where you can change it if you want to. You can modify that brain chemistry yourself. And you do that by accepting it the way it is. If you start and say, oh, I don't like this. I want to change it. Often that's the intellect and the ego talking and it doesn't work very well. It's after you accept it and deal with it is when you get to change it if you want to. But often people get to that point where they can change it and decide they really don't want to.